we started fearing the future. And there is nothing more self-defeating for a democratic society than starting fearing the future. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. In the 1960s, Martin Lipset, a really influential political scientist, made this striking observation about the political system in Europe and North America. The party system, he showed, had become frozen. After a decade of rapid change, it started to look like the same kinds of parties got elected again and again. So sometimes the center-left party would win office, sometimes they would fall out of favor and the center-right party would overtake them. But between them, they took up a lot of space in the political system. The basic members of a political system weren't changing. And that observation held true for the next 40 or so years. The party structure really was frozen. Well, I've been arguing over the last couple of years that it has started to fall. But you've started to see the rise of populist parties on the far right and also on the far left. But what's happened over the last year is truly striking. The party system isn't just falling, it's, I don't know, boiling. Look at Austria, where in the presidential election you had candidates of two minor parties facing off each other in the second round. Look at the United States, where the party system seems intact, but essentially one party has suffered a hostile takeover. Look at the Netherlands, where the Social Democratic Party has crashed from around 30 to around 5%, while a formerly minor party has shot up in the polls. This doesn't mean that the populists will always win. It doesn't mean that everything will always go as badly as it possibly can. Some of these parties might bring a breath of fresh air and some much-needed change. But it does mean that the certainties of our politics that we've become accustomed to over the last 50 years are out of a window. We're going to, I think, continue seeing really rapid change, a really rapid changing of the guards of political personnel, of parties, of movements in North America and Western Europe over the next years. And that's really a new political world. I'm thrilled that Ivan Khrushchev is joining us on the podcast today. Ivan is one of the preeminent Central European intellectuals, somebody of piercing insight and wide-ranging knowledge. Basically, he's everything Slavoj Žižek pretends to be. He's also the chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, Bulgaria, and a permanent fellow at the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna. He's the author of Democracy Disrupted and of In Mistrust We Trust. And his forthcoming book, which I just read and which is excellent, is After Europe. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ivan. You know, the conversation about the rise of populism and threat to liberal democracy has often focused, you know, on countries like the United States, Britain, France. At most, it sort of mentions Hungary and Poland. So I'd love to know what you see as having been happening in Central and Eastern Europe over the last years, and not just in Poland or Hungary, but in other countries. What is the nature of the populist threat and to what degree is the liberal democratic project succeeding or failing in that region? Listen, I do believe also that our understanding of populism was a very narrow one. We have been focusing on certain type of populist actors, 
the type of populism was very much focused on the rise of the populist parties. And I do believe that from this point of view, Central and Eastern Europe allows somebody to see a broader picture. And the broader picture is that Obviously, we see a major transformation of the liberal democracy in the way we knew it them in the 1990s. Part of the liberal consensuses in these liberal democracies has changed, and this is reflected not simply in the rise of the populist parties, but the emergence of new consensuses on several issues. One is 1989 and basically the changes in Central and Eastern Europe were very much related with the idea of open societies, open borders, open economies, and Central and East Europeans were the ones most uh, enjoying this change because for them this was the most radical change. They're coming from a totally different political system. What we see today is that the world of open borders started to be perceived as a threat. This is very clear in the case of Central and Eastern Europe. And when it comes to reaction to a refugee crisis and migration, you're not going to see a major difference in the reaction of Hungarian government and Polish government on one side, and for example, the Czech government, or the Bulgarian government, or the Romanian government on the other side. There is a very strong anti-migrant consensus and the feeling that basically migration is a threat for the cultural identity, for the social models of this Central and East European country. And don't forget that from this point of view, Central and Eastern Europe is the place of Europe with the highest level of ethnic homogeneity. Now, it was not case in history, but this is very much the case now. The other thing that changed but, 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 a lot... Let me, let me pick you up there, because this is one thing that I've been struggling with, right? So I try in my forthcoming book and so on to give a common set of causes for this populist rise in different parts of the world, because there's something really striking about the fact that you see a move towards a liberal democracy, you see a rise of populism, not just in the States, but in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, even in places like Turkey and Russia and India. And so you would think that there has to be some amount of common cause. It doesn't just happen that these movements are rising at the same time in similar ways in such different parts of the world. But I always struggle with Eastern Europe because some of the most obvious explanations for what's going on that work in many other places don't work so easily in Eastern Europe. And the demographic transition is one of those, right? So I've talked a lot about on this podcast and in writing about the way in which countries in Western Europe are transforming from mono-ethnic, monocultural countries to multi-ethnic ones. And there's a sort of rebellion against that. Or in the case of the United States, you know, the country has always been multi-ethnic, but there used to be a clear racial hierarchy, and we're slowly overcoming that. And there's a rebellion against that among some people. But, you know, it's easy to look at Central and Eastern Europe and say, but they, they are still homogeneous. Why are they so worried about the 74 refugees that are coming to Estonia? Why are they so worried about the cultural identity when they continue to be extremely homogeneous? And I know you have an answer to that, but... No, I, I have an answer, and I do believe this is quite important, because from this point of view, there are two important things that happened to Eastern Europe that people basically failed to notice. One is, yes, there were not people coming to this part of Europe, and you're not going to see much refugees in these countries, but there were a lot of people leaving these countries. You're going to see 10% of the population of the Baltic countries left for the last 10 years. You're going to see more than 10% of the population of Bulgarians. You're going to see a lot of people living Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic. And we're talking about this type of a major changes in a situation of a societies which are, as a 
rule very small and medium-sized countries and societies, and also on aging ones. From the demographic perspective, Central and Eastern Europe is very much the place where the negative demographic dynamics is uh, to be seen in Europe. And the second thing that happened is that for the last 25 years, Central and East European societies basically collectively migrated to the West. This was the basic process of integration in, of Central and Eastern Europe in the European Union. So we adopted institutions, we adopted practices. So I was always tended to view some of the populist governments like the one in Hungary and Poland in the way you view the second generation of migrants. The first generation, people like Havel and uh, Geremek and others, uh, important Central European political leaders of the 1990s, for them it was critically important to show that Central Europe is more European than Europeans. We have been much more devoted to the problem of liberal democracy. We have a constitutions that have been much more liberal and protecting minorities than almost anybody else. We were much more ready to defend democracy in any other parts of the world, at least rhetorically. But then comes the second generation, and the second generation starts to experience uh, glass ceilings, trying to fear the Central and East European countries, so like the second uh, class of citizens within the European Union, and many of these people went back to the traditions, and basically they went back to some of their nationalistic traditions. They start to see the European Union and the liberal internationalist regime that it embodies as a kind of a threat to their national traditions. And this is very clear in the case of both Poland and Hungary. Plus came this idea, you, you remember George Orwell always said that every revolution is a failure, but it is not the same failure. The problem with the revolution of 1989 is that it was declared as the victory for everybody. Unlike the previous revolutions, the communists, but even the revolution of 1789, it was a non-violent revolution. It did not try to destroy the previous communist elites. It tried to include and integrate them. And I do believe this is the case in, uh, this is true in the case of uh, President Trump in the US, but I do believe it's very much true in the case of the East European populists. One of the things that makes them very attractive for certain type of groups that experience themselves as the losers of transition, is that they're offering totally different idea of victory. You cannot be victorious if your enemy, if your opponent is not totally destroyed. One of the major accusations against the liberal nature of the transition period in Central and, period in Central and Eastern Europe is that it kind of blurred the border between victory and defeat. What kind of victory it is if None of the communist leaders went uh, to prison. If some of the communist elites ended up as the economic winners of uh, transition. So I do believe this sentiment was also quite important in order to understand this strange rise of populism in a place where you don't expect it to happen. Let, let me let me get at this question a slightly different way, right? And, and, and I think you've begun to answer this question, but I'm still a little confused about it. So one question is, about these demographic fears. And, and and perhaps let's dig into that a little bit more. And then I have a second question. Right? So on the demographic fears, okay, so so a lot of the population of Bulgaria, of the Baltic states has left over the last 25 years. And so I guess what I hear you saying is that there's these demographic fears that are quite similar, that people in Western Europe think if we continue to have a lot of immigration, if we continue to accept refugees, you know, our country is not going to be our country anymore 
because people with these different cultures and religions and so on are going to start being in a majority, and that'll really be a fundamental transformation of a place where I live, and 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 people aren't happy about that. And and I guess what, how is it different or the same in Central or Eastern Europe? So, you know, I I can see demographic fears as a headline applying as well when a lot of your population is leaving and so on. But but is it that that they actually say, well, because our population is shrinking so much. If we have people coming in from the outside soon, we'll also be in a minority. And we've seen where this has already led in Western Europe or where this is, where this is leading in Western Europe. Imagine this. Very small, uh, uh, let's tell you a joke which was uh, quite popular in Bulgaria recently. Three uh, men dressed like a samurais walk on the streets of Sofia. And the bystander stopped them and said, who are you? And they said, we are the seven samurais. He said, but why are you only three? They said the other four are working abroad. I do believe one of the things that happened with this uh, exodus of people from Central and Eastern Europe is first this created this demographic fear very much uh, uh, triggered also by the refugee crisis that there are not enough of you, that nobody wants to stay in these places. That probably in 50 or 100 years and with the young people living and with all these refugees coming, they're not going to be anybody speaking Bulgarian. They're not going to be anybody basically identifying himself as Bulgarian or Hungarian or Serb. And this type of a demographic panic explains partially how it happened that in a country in which you do not have refugees, the rejection of refugees is much higher than in a country where you have a lot of refugees. What do you mean by this idea of renationalizing the elite? Because I think it's a fascinating thing. That I think in some ways might apply to Donald Trump as well. There's something parallel there that I want to tease out. So listen, nationalization of the elite is, in my view, critically important because it explains part of the attraction of the populist party and the appeal of the populist parties. And this is very much about the nature of these new, much more global elites, because I do believe that the critical question that modern-day democracy faces how you can have elites which are legitimate both globally and locally. And this is a critical issue because if you can imagine what has changed is that you have an elites which in a way are much more meritocratic than any type of elites that we know before. Just look at the people who are running European Union, European Commission and others, and you're going to see people coming from a humble backgrounds, typical meritocratic trajectory. They were good at school. They went through the good universities. They basically succeeded through giving exams. But what is interesting about these people is that they have been also the very mobile elites. They can be a banker or a professor in their own country, but they can do it also in London. They can do it in Berlin. And they're very much proud of this. Basically, they do believe that they can be successful anyway, any, in any place. This is what, in my view, makes people very suspicious towards them. This is like with the football teams, where now you have the best football teams. They're trying to borrow and to rent stars and to get the best players from all over. And when the team is working and winning, it's fine. But when it starts losing, there is no loyalty to this team because none of the players, all these stars that they have been bought, know anybody in the neighborhood of the city they play. Nobody is ready to forgive them any type of a failure. So when the financial crisis came, people looked to these elites and they said, do you know what? They have an exit and I don't have an exit. They can move to other 
bank in other country, but I can move nowhere. And strangely enough, the populists very much use this and their major message is, I'm one of you, I'm ready to stay with you. I don't basically despise you, I love you and I love you nevertheless of who you are and what are you doing. And I find this very important because I noticed something that probably you have seen also in other countries. 10 years ago, the fact that you speak foreign language was critically important to be elected. People believe that they should be governed by people who know the world. These days, for example, in the elections in many Central and East European countries, the fact that you don't speak a foreign language increases your chance to be elected in government or in parliament because people think like this, this guy has nowhere else to go. He should stay with us and we can trust him most. There's something paradoxical about this, though, right? Because what you say, because a lot of these national elites are very corrupt. And people know that, right? As you were saying, they knew that the national governments are corrupt. And, and, and so, you know, why is it that it's more important to people to think that at some emotional or instinctual level, the governors are on their side than it is that they'll actually do good things for them and produce good results for them. I and mean, I think you can run a similar tension about Donald Trump. Now, in the States, nobody thinks about, you know, exit in the same way as they might in, you know, Serbia. But there is a dynamic there where Donald Trump is, you know, like I think most people sort of know that he's pretty self-serving, that he screwed over a bunch of his contractors in his career as a businessman, that, you know, even though he said that he would do something for coal miners and for working class people, the policies he's pursuing really benefit, you know, the super rich and himself financially. But somehow it is enough for people to feel like culturally he's one of us, you know, he eats a steak with ketchup and actually doesn't look down on us. He cares about the same kinds of things that we care about. That seems more important than economic performance, all those kinds of things. And, and, and I don't, I'm not sure that I get that political alchemy, right? Like I get why in itself people care about feeling like the governors are on their side or they don't have exit. But why is it that even if they're quite skeptical of the governors, if they see all of the governors' flaws, they still prefer that to the alternative? Because don't forget, there is also something quite important. Meritocrat neither meritocratic elites nor the populists offer any type of a common project to the people. The meritocrats, they see society as a school. So you have an equal opportunity. Some of the people are doing better than others. So from this point of view, don't forget that meritocracy as a type of society is quite tolerable to social inequalities, to income inequalities. Because for them, they came as the result of kind of a genuine equal opportunity system. So some people are doing better than others. So they don't have also the feeling as an elite, meritocratic elites, they own anything to anybody. From this point of view, the idea is we did it. We did it according to the rules. We have the right to be rich. We have the right to do this and that. And I have the feeling that people found this very threatening because the populists come and said they also don't have a project. By the way, the interesting story about the populism today is that the major message of the populists is, I like you in the way you are. I don't want to change you. This is very different than what the communist parties were doing or the Christian democratic parties were doing. All these old ideological uh, parties, they liked the people in the way they could be. They were pedagogical parties. 
Now you have no pedagogy at all. Basically, they're treating them as a consumers. The major message of the populist is the consumer is always right. We are here to serve you. We're going to be your waiters. You want this, you're going to get it. And I took it from this understanding of, popul- of, of politics. Populist coming is more authentic, is much more genuine, while the meritocratic elites are coming as more arrogant. So the only way I can make sense of this is if you've actually given up, and that may be the truth of the matter, but you've actually given up on politics altogether, right? When you look at politics and you think the political class has the ability to improve my life, that if we, if, if, if we govern our country well, things will get better. Then you have a strong incentive to vote for the people who seem competent, who don't seem corrupt, who might not be like you, but it doesn't matter to you that your doctor isn't like you as long as you trust him to heal you, right? Yeah. But once you're saying, you know what, the doctor is not going to heal me anyway. I'm sick anyway. There's nothing that medicine can do for me. Then you at least don't want to be judged, right? And so it seems to me that everything you're saying makes sense to me, but it only makes sense to me under the basic proviso of, you know, these are people who've essentially given up. They've given up on politics, doing something for them, and perhaps to some degree have given up on the country. And so at least they want to preserve its culture, and at least they want the person who's in government to say, you can feel good about yourself. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. It is fair. And do you know what? People have also some reasons to believe it. Because if you're going to listen how the governments explain what is happening, you're also going to see the elites that have given up on politics. How do you mean? Uh, let's give you a simple example. This is much more clear, by the way, in Europe than in the United States. Because if before the governments were going to the people all the time, trying to show that they're much more capable to change their life than they were, You remember all these old jokes that we are going to make you a bridge. We don't have a river. We're going to make a river for you. This type of a classical political overpromising. So now most of the politicians goes to their voters and said, you know what? Very few things depend on us. There is a global market. There is the European Union. We cannot change, for example, the budget deficit. We cannot change this. We cannot change that. So you have a certain type of a competition among the political elites, particularly in Europe, to show to the people how impotent they are. So they're trying really very much to manage the expectations of the people, what a government or politics can do. And this politics of managing expectations, keeping expectations low, trying to explain to the people what you cannot do, created this, uh, I do believe, very kind of expected reaction. If politics and politicians cannot do anything for me, at least be sure that I'm going to be governed by people who share my cultural tastes, who share my Fears, and I don't believe anymore that anybody is going really to change my life for good. And this type of... What, what do we do about that? Because I think more and more that at the heart of a populist appeal is a promise of simplicity, right? That what populists everywhere say is sort of what you just said, right? Is, is to say, look, like the elites are going to tell you that things are complicated, that they don't have everything under control, that it's not their fault if, you know, your standard of living isn't improving as fast as, as you had hoped. And actually, all of that is untrue. The problem with elites is that they are self-serving, they're corrupt, the loyalty isn't really with you, right? They are ready to go and move abroad. They are ready to go and serve minorities over you because they don't like you. They're not, they're not similar to you. 
And so what you need to do is to elect somebody who's like me, who sort of speaks common sense, who stands for the people, and he's going to solve everything. Now, the problem is the politics is complicated, right? And it's easy to fault political elites for saying, why do you keep going on about how difficult things are? Why do you try to educate your voters into understanding that the economy is not under your control and you get elected and within a year everything is going to go better because you're so great, right? It's easy to lampoon that. And I absolutely see the flaw of that kind of politics. But in a world that is pretty complicated, that is globalized, that is interconnected, what's the alternative? So what should democratic politicians, non-populist politicians do in order to get out of this trap? Listen, the most difficult thing, and I do believe this is why we should have a huge sympathy to anybody who goes into politics these days, first you have a major culture of mistrust. And mistrust was important for any liberal society, but I always believe that there is a threshold. Now the mistrust in institutions, in politicians, is a default option. We start mistrusting. We try to see everywhere conspiracy. We're trying to see everywhere kind of a special interests. And this is why for the politicians is very difficult. I do believe that one of the things that has changed a lot is politics is not about equality of knowledge and everybody knew it very well, but it was very much about the equality of experience. My experience is as valuable as your experience. And I know much better than you what I feel and how basically the world is for me. So when we go to vote, I'm voting with this. But we're living in a world in which most of the things that concern us, we do not have experience about them. The world simply became not simply very complex, but very big. You either should trust or mistrust. And I do believe that for reasons that is very difficult to explain, but people went on this type of mistrust mode. And what we see is that any time when a non-populist political party or leader uh, succeeded to be populist, this is because of the fact that people were much more ready to trust him, not his program. I do believe that it's going to be very difficult to overcome populist challenge if we think simply in terms of policies. Uh, populists are coming with a certain type of biographies and their biographies is going to say, listen, I'm like you. And I do believe that uh, uh, liberal politicians should show that they also have a biography and this biography is very much, I can change things and I can change things for you. But isn't there so a distinction is very between... much about political leadership. What the populists did, they moved the competition very much on the level of political leadership and really personal biographies. People should have the story to tell, the story about themselves and not about only policies that, that they're ready to offer. But Ivan, I both agree and disagree with that, right? So I agree at a tactical level. I think basically in the short run, populists now are, you know, depending on the country, they're stronger or weaker, but basically they're currently in a structural position where they are close to taking over. They have a shot at winning majorities, but there isn't yet sort of inbuilt majority support for them. And so when you have, you know, a weak establishment candidate who marries all of the most negative aspects of political elite together, populists have a real chance of winning. And that essentially is, I think, what happened in 2016 in the United States. On the contrary, when you have the most attractive phase of some form of quote-unquote establishment politics, like Emmanuel Macron, for the reasons you, you outlined, then establishment politics can win. They can win decisively. So in the tactical sense, you are right that you have to have 
a credible biography. You have to be able to inspire hope. You have to be able to give people a sense that you vote for them and things are going to change. But here's the problem. I think there's a strategic level, which has to do with all of the underlying factors that have made populism rise over time, which have to do with the transition to a multi-ethnic society, which have to do with stagnation of living standards, which have to do with an increasing urban-rural cleavage. And unless we manage to actually counteract those larger drivers, populists are just going to find it more and more easy to win elections. In any one election, it's still going to come down to a large degree to those sort of tactical circumstances, how credible is the establishment candidate, how talented at exploiting the system's weaknesses as the populist candidate. But unless we find the policies that actually help to quell the drivers of this populist revolt, I'm really fearful that we'll lose more and more and more elections to the populists and they'll take over more and more countries as time goes no, on. Listen, you're absolutely right to be fearful, but I do believe we're going to see and we're already witnessing three very important structural changes which are going dramatically to transform democracy as we know them. One is migration, and uh, I have been very much really focusing on this, that we should not basically talk about this refugee crisis or that migration crisis. What has changed in the world is that first, for the first time probably, starting with the 1970s, we live in a common world, which means that every part of the world knows how the other part of the world lives. So we are living in the world of global comparisons. And in this world of global comparisons, the most revolutionary thing that you can do as an individual is not to try to change your government, but to try to change your country. Uh, and if you're basically living somewhere in Africa, moving to Europe or moving to the United States or Canada is a much more radical political move than anything that you're going to do by creating a party or running on the elections. And of course, this is much easier to organize because you don't have the collective action problem. You're just needing to take the risk and to try to do it. So we're going to have this pressure. This pressure is going to be very strong because it's not going to be produced simply by this or that catastrophe and war, but it is going to be the most radical political solution. The new revolutionaries are going to be migrants. The second is the technological challenge. We are living more and more in a society in which uh, having a job is becoming a privilege. It's not a duty. And I don't know to what extent our democracy are really prepared for a society in which only probably 20% of the population is going to be fully employed in a type of jobs that we enjoy now. And how political systems are going to react to this? How are we going to have a liberal democratic system for this world, which is going to be pressed by migration on one side and automation of jobs on the other? I don't believe this is the real challenge. And here, of course, the populist has nothing to offer because the populist basically is offering people that they're going to stop the time. They're going to reverse the time. We're going back to the 1950s. We're going to make America great again and Britain gain again and Bulgaria great again. By the way, in order to make Bulgaria great again, probably we should go back to the 13th century. <laughs> uh, so from this point of view, I do believe that we should change totally the narrative. The narrative is not about defending this institution or that institution. It is to say that the real party of change is going to be the liberal parties. And from this point of view, Macron was great because Macron, who is coming from this establishment, he was not the establishment candidate. 
And this is why he won, because he said the only way for France to change is to change the European Union. For only one, the only way to change the European Union is France is going to be in the driving seat of the European Union. And he managed to mobilize people around the platform, which in the case not only of the populist parties, but even the establishment party was a losing platform. And this is, I find, uh, very interesting how to transform the establishment parties into parties of change. If they're not going to do it, I do believe the populists are simply going to benefit from the fact that they are anti-status quo forces. I think that's absolutely right. And I've seen that in so far as establishment candidates can win, they have styled themselves successfully as candidates of change. And that's true of Barack Obama in a certain sense. It's certainly true of Emmanuel Macron. But the problem is that once it becomes concrete, people tend not to like the change. So we're going to see how Macron's presidency plays out. And I admire his candidacy. I admire the way that he's transformed the French political system. But a lot of his program is quite similar to the program of François Hollande. And François Hollande left office as the least popular French president. So it seems to me that, you know, the funny thing about uh, voters in North America and Western Europe is that they like change in the abstract, but they actually dislike it in practice. And in particular, they dislike it for good reason, because everything we're telling them about the future is that it's going to be less good to them than the past, that the job might get automated, that either they become these sort of, you know, top-notch programmers or they're going to be losers of the global order, that the countries are declining, that the cultures are changing very rapidly. So how do we put forward a set of political propositions of change that are realistic, that aren't making pie-in-the-sky promises that are going to be revealed as fraudulent, you know, within the time frame of the next election, that can actually help to produce affluent, vibrant societies over time and that are actually viable. And I know I'm asking sort of an impossible question of you because I certainly don't have the answer. I'm not sure that anybody does. But the scale of that challenge seems immense to me. True, but I do believe that the most important in the radical ages in the way we are witnessing now, it's not the answer, but it's the question. And from this point of view, I do believe that we cannot expect at this stage to have the policies that are going to be the policies very much adjusted to the future coming. But the most important is to try to push people to re-perceive the world in which we are living. Because at the moment, the worst that is happening in the liberal democracies of the West is that we started fearing the future. And there is nothing more self-defeating for democratic society that's starting fearing the future. Because when you start to fear the future, and you can see this in many places, we basically unconsciously start to imitate some of the policies and some of the rhetoric and the language of the authoritarian regimes, because part of the kind of problem with authoritarianism is that this is a regime based on the promise, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to defend you against the external enemies, but also I'm going to defend you against the future. How to fall in love with the future is quite important because the future obviously is not very friendly to us. It does not resemble the type of periods when we were good. And from this point of view, I do believe it's interesting to see what kind of a social coalitions works. In Europe at the moment, there is one group which is very strongly and persistently voting against uh, the populace, these are the young women. Why? Because they don't want to go back. 
they simply don't go want to back to this type of conservative society in which they didn't like the role which was for them. So how to try to push other groups to see an opportunity in the world which is coming? Because listen, this world with technology and others, they're not going to be industrial jobs. But on the other side, they're going to be a much better probably standard of living exactly because these robots and others, they're also working for us. And this is interesting because I'm afraid that one thing that has disappeared, and this is why liberalism in such a global crisis, is all the universalist perspectives. Look what is coming with the left. Left is becoming culturally protectionist and economically protectionist. The blue-collar workers are really now totally moving from the center-left to the far right in most of the countries in Europe. But you're going to see this And in the United States as well. I mean, that in a way is the story yeah, yeah, of Michigan yeah. and, and so flipping to Trump. That what was the interesting story was that Marxism had promised the working class that after globalization, they're going to be a global revolution. It's going to be better for them. This promise is not anywhere. To the extent that left exists, this basically exists simply as a critical position, which is telling you how bad it is with the liberal society, with the liberal economics. They're promising nothing because at the moment, the left is a nostalgic party. They're telling you what we have lost. I'm trying to transpose this onto American politics at the moment in my mind, right? So there's no doubt that uh, Trump was a nostalgic candidate in that sense, right? Make America great again, the promise is to go back to a particular moment when America was great. Now, Hillary Clinton's answer to this was, America is already great. So perhaps we have to have three different categories. One is the category of nostalgia, which has a left version and a sort of far-right populist version. Then there's the category of sort of continuity, which is basically saying, you know what, what are you complaining about? Look around, isn't everything wonderful? And that seems really tone deaf. It seems out of place for people who are afraid of the future, who do think that they're under pressure. And what you're saying is what we need is actually a third thing, which is sort of not America is already great, but I will make America great in a new way. And also in the coming world, America can be also great. And Europe could be also great. So all we need to do is to find incredibly charismatic candidates who embody a radical break with the past in their own biography and can paint a convincing portrait of winning in the future. Because don't forget, all bigger radical changes in politics comes from this type of a charismatic leaders, because what is interesting about charismatic leaders is that they're bridging positions which till yesterday were perceived as irreconcilable. In a strange way, the radical change is also the field of inconsistency. And if we're not going to bridge it, if we're not going to retell the story in a new way and to create a totally different coalitions, this is going to be the populists who are doing this. And to be honest, Donald Trump was great at doing this. He managing to trade off his inconsistency for the intensity of his politics and rhetoric and in the moment of change, intensity works better than consistency. So how should the 2020 Democratic candidate talk? What should they talk about? What promises should they make? What language should they use? Listen, from Europe, we're all specialists on American politics. <laughs> and, uh, but I know one thing, and I do believe this is quite important to understand that 
It's very bad that, of course, Democrats lost, but it's also very bad that they lost with Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton was a very competent woman, but she was very much the person of yesterday. And from this point of view, the interesting story is not simply to try to rebuild the coalition that existed before. It's not about what was the coalition of Barack Obama or what was the coalition of uh, 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 which Hillary tried to, to did, but to try to imagine a new American majority. This is something that struck me when I was following basically all this protest and resistance against the Trump presidency. You have women's marches, you have climate marches, you have science marches. Don't you know what you don't have? You don't have the majority march. And I do believe that from this point of view, trying to define a new majority, not simply as a coalition of a different identity parties, but as a different project for the United States, I do believe this is what the next candidate is going to do. He should tell a story about America as a whole, and not only a story that can help him to assemble a majority of voters that he hopes to win. And this is what I'm very much lacking at the moment in the American democratic politics on the side of the Democrats. They have kind of forgotten to think in terms of political majorities and not simply in terms of coalition of uh, minority identities. Ivan, there are so many more questions that I have for you and so many more things that I would love to talk about. I think the solution simply will have to be to have you back on the podcast before long. But this, I think, is the perfect note to to end on. Thank you so much for this wonderful and wide-ranging conversation. And we will have you back on soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Buy a portable microphone and spread the good news outside the next tube, metro or subway stop. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.